So yeah, we focus mostly on uh, municipalities in the European Research Council funded project that I was a postdoc on. It's called Global Remunicipalization, so it very much focuses on the municipal level. And we look at service provision, so public services or essential services, and also infrastructures and assets. So these might just be, yeah, like the, the water infrastructure, energy infrastructures. About taking back into public ownership and governance certain essential services, and these are especially sectors of water, energy, waste collection, but also health and social care, education telecommunications, so all sorts of things that we might frame as essential to maintaining a quality of life for citizens. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska-Kuri Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co-production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. After some inactive months, I return with the fourth season of Co-Water Voice to talk about possible radical alternatives to water service commercialization. The privatization trend with its different forms of implementing policy has definitely worsened existing conflicts over water resources and water territories, a topic that I have covered in the season two of this podcast. In this season, I have conversations to highlight some important concepts for understanding the background conditions of public service privatization or why it was possible in the first place for privatization to happen worldwide. I think only through this understanding we can then imagine the conditions of possibility for the alternatives to emerge. In this episode, we have Francisca Powell as our guest. She is a lecturer in political economy at the Adam Smith Business School, University of Glasgow. Dr. Francisca Pau holds a PhD in Geography from the University of Glasgow with her thesis on energy democracy and trade union movement building towards a new radical labor environmentalism. She then worked as a postdoctoral researcher on the ERC-funded Global Remunicipalization Project. Francisca is also involved with the Public Futures Database, a collaborative initiative that was initiated by Transnational Institute in 2007. This database is the first comprehensive collection of deprivatization cases in the world. In this episode, I speak with Francisca about the German particular trajectory of neoliberal state and its context from which some social movement initiatives emerged to influence public policy. I also speak with her about her research trajectory within the academia. I'm always interested in how other researchers approaching their fields of work and what kind of main questions they would like to answer. I hope our light conversation can be meaningful also for you. 
Francisca, it's very nice to have you here. What you have written in Environmental and Planning A and an Antipode, your publication also with Andrew Cumbers, among important key literatures for my project. And I think it's also uh, nice to talk some of your arguments in there uh, that I think uh, will be also very interesting for some Indonesians or people who are working in urban planning. I haven't read your dissertation, but I think the whole story is that actually you're talking about very basic concepts. You know, we have the market, we have the state, and we have community. Of course, there are more nuance in between that. You talk about labor unions and maybe small-scale entrepreneurs, you know. So maybe we can start with, through your, your scholarship trajectory, what is the most interesting uh, phenomena that you observe? Is it is it about the state? Is it about public service? Is it about democracy? Okay, that is um, a really interesting question. Thanks, uh... I think, yeah, uh, it probably would be democracy. So the thing that ties um, all of my thinking together is democratization. And I think that's how I'm thinking through um, deprivatization. So making uh, things probably back to public or collectively owned and managed again, um, and also around the climate crisis. So um, I started with a master's thesis looking at energy democracy in Germany. Um, and I looked at the Berlin energy case, actually, which followed um, a water case. So I'm a bit familiar with it, but I mainly looked at energy. Um, and then for, the, for, for that thinking around energy transition, I, I thought about how does energy transition relate to other processes in German society and how have um, other processes made that possible that we are thinking uh, in a particular way in Germany about um, climate change and energy transition to more renewables. Um, and then I was thinking how that related to democracy as well. So if we democratize energy services, um, energy generation, we have much more um, opportunity uh, to make these processes climate friendly. And that then led to a PhD where I was actually looking much more at how trade unions were looking at energy transition. Um, and I looked again at energy democracy as it was articulated by labor actors um, and they were framing it also around public ownership so that if um, public, the public sector, uh, the energy sector was publicly owned, sorry, um, so publicly and collectively owned, maybe by worker co-ops um, or, or just by the state uh, in, in, together with the labor actors, how we could then transform the energy sector to be more uh, renewable and sustainable and also working in the interest of the people, so fairer prices um, and interest better provision. And yeah, and then I started working on a project that was purely public ownership, no longer just the energy sector um, as a postdoc. And I explored um, sort of democratization of various services and infrastructures um, through the re-municipalization. So taking back into local public ownership. What is this empirical situations that you're working on. Like in Indonesia, we consume Nivea, <laughs> Capri Sol. We know this, other German products, the auto industries, uh, I mean, the, the car industries, you know. So when you talk about public, are you talking about how 
state institutions regulating markets on one side and make sure that the society, all their needs are fulfilled or what is actually the tradition within the the country? I guess your empirical works are mostly about Germany, isn't it? Not just, but I have done a significant amount of work on Germany, but I've also looked at the US and Britain. But um, yeah, let's focus on Germany. Let's just talk about Germany. So this is a bit uh, complex. So yeah, we focus mostly on um, municipalities in the European Research Council funded project that I was a postdoc on. It's called global remunicipalization. So it very much focuses on the municipal level. And we look at service provision, so public services or essential services, and also infrastructures and assets. So these might just be, yeah, like the, the water infrastructure, energy infrastructures across all sorts of sectors. So it's not so much looking at uh, privatizing like big private companies like Capri Sun or Volkswagen or, you know, um, but at, about taking back into public ownership and governance certain essential services. And these are especially sectors of water, energy, waste collection, but also health and social care, education, telecommunications, so all sorts of things that we might frame as essential to maintaining a quality of life for citizens. Yeah, it was like a small <laughs> provocation. What is we mean by public services? Are, it's a kind of a core task of the state to fulfill this need. But yeah. I think you're talking about this term social welfare obligation das eins Vorsorge. What what is this? Because because you explain their particular trajectories of governance, let's say, in Germany, yeah. and I think it is also very much about uh, how the state managing private sectors in general, right? About uh, you know, I follow news, and then how how they will always try to regulate through taxes about this car industry and all this thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably related. Yes. I think there is where I would maybe want to go back to talking a bit about the German state and how it's structured first, um, because it is quite complex. Um, And I think here I should really start with going back to how the German state was set up, basically. Um, So the structure of the German state, um, as it is now, is actually quite new. So it um, basically is a result of the post-Second World War uh, reflections on how to build democracy from below and how to avoid a concentration of power um, like had happened under the Nazi regime. Um, so how to how to build a democratic German state, basically. And um, since 1949, then, we have um, the Grundgesetz, which actually just translate as uh, basic law or fundamental law, but it is basically the constitution of Germany. So um, the Grundgesetz um, den- denotes or, or makes the uh, German state a federal representative and participatory democratic republic. And all these three words are quite important for when we look at the processes of deprivatization so that it's federal representative and participatory. Um, and then the Democratic Republic itself is made up of 16 Bundesländer, which we call federal states. Uh, and just to make it more complicated, three of them are city states and 13 are regular states, I guess, with larger territories, but they do vary in size quite a lot. Um, and all of them actually have their own constitutions that are sometimes older than the federal German constitution. Um, but it, 
it like it overrules them in certain aspects because the actual federal idea is then that state power is devolved down to the federal states from the federation. We call it state power, I guess, uh, but it means like authority to organize their own affairs doesn't lie just with the central state, but with the federal states. Um, and then that, the, the idea of federalism in Germany is that it then gets devolved further down to the municipalities or this next smaller level of government, really. Uh, and in Germany's case, these are um, uh, both cities and sort of rural districts that that uh, group together various smaller towns and cities. And there's 400 um, municipalities, about 100 cities and 300 um, rural uh, municipalities uh, that then present sort of the smallest, uh, but at the same time, the most important level of government because the um, German state devolves power to organize um, affairs uh, to this level, because it is the level that people, the people, the citizens of Germany are most able to participate in. Participate in. So we come back to the participatory term um, in this federal arrangement. How this social welfare obligation then uh, stick to? Because, you know, this also related to some technical problems like financing. Uh, let's talk about financing itself. And then, you know, lay down infrastructure, putting streets, underground pipes and all these things. Then how this then relates? Because, you know, I also hear a lot about the North Hessen um, uh, woods, that forest that would be also uh, cut down for a toll road. So this is, you see, the overlay uh, of uh, interest, right, beyond mm -hmm. this very local level. And then how then this will be uh, decided, for example. Yeah, so... Uh, it's it's complex. <laughs> There's no real uh, straightforward answer to it because, as I said, a lot of things are sort of devolved down to the municipalities, but not everything. So some topics are exempt. Some make sense to be organized at the central state level, like foreign affairs or um, the protection of the constitution or defense. Um, some are sort of in between the state as the central state and the federal states, and some are the municipalities. So the municipalities are actually responsible for the public provision. Um, they are tasked with the public provision. And I think this is an important difference because um, they don't have to deliver the services themselves. They just have to assure that they are being delivered. This is the concept of um, Daseinsvorsorge that you mentioned before. Um, but that would, for example, be energy, um, electricity, water, uh, even education that is uh, organized at the individual state levels of the federal states. Um, yeah. So there are these various different ways to organize certain things. And then while electricity provision is organized at the municipality, um, and I mean, I'm not 100% sure <laughs> how, you know, how the infrastructure is organized, but I'm surely like not every single municipality needs to build a grid, like the grid is the responsibility of, of another level of government. Uh, and I think by trying to make um, services or uh, infrastructures more equal or accessible to all in these in this complex democratic structure, they they have sort of inbuilt issues about who is organizing what. So in the examples you gave, um, road building, I think, is is probably the task of either the central state or the, the, the individual federal states, but then it will affect municipalities 
um, in certain ways uh, in their own um, thinking around, you know, maybe environmental protection or forestry. So, yeah, it yeah, becomes course, complicated. Yeah, of course, for our field, it's also about the land allocation, where to build uh, particular in infrastructures. I don't want to uh, kind of blur the main message here is that there's a normative, there is a normative standard that we have to stick on, which is that basic service has to be provided. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that how to, to provide it is a technical discussions that it should follow. Uh, then this is probably the room that was used by the moment of privatization, uh, privatization, isn't it? That, you know, OK, it's still the state who provided, but we help, you know, then this outsourcing processes was also the case of the water case in Berlin, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, so then now that they realized that the promises was not there, so the price for water case is that the price is not lower and in terms of different kind of access. And the third thing is that about um, protections of environment. This is yeah. something that the private sector didn't care at all. And yeah. then it's just a kind of the externalization of cost. This is also... Um, what is uh, made me interested is that even if I haven't read your dissertation, is that how labor unions then have these concerns, you know, and then kind of help and the privatization. Um. Yeah. So I should caveat this by saying that the work I did on labor. Um, and environmentalism, I did not do in Germany because the German trade unions are actually, um, they're quite conservative compared to some uh, unions elsewhere. Uh, and I do wonder if that's because the neoliberal state in Germany isn't, I'm, I don't, I'm reluctant to say as bad <laughs> um, because it still is, it has created highly unequal conditions for the German citizens. But maybe not as bad as the Anglo-American models or experiences in uh, Chile or South America, especially for water privatization, I guess. Um, uh, so that the labor unions are also uh, less um, incentivized to go against their employers. Um, and in the case of Berlin, actually, the labor unions were organizing against uh, energy remunicipalization, which was... Um, interesting, but I was also in the 2010s, um, and I think there has been a lot of change in the German labor movement towards pro-public um, approaches as well, certainly in some unions. Uh, maybe it's just before I continue more on your particular of uh, your study, what you know about uh, if labor unions against uh, state ownership, what would be normally the, the logic or the, the rationalities? Um, in the case of Berlin, I know that they were quite happy with the uh, conditions they were getting under private um, ownership. They were very, I think they were quite influenced by the private provider saying that they would get less pay or having worse working conditions under public ownership. And I don't really know what happened because a lot of labor unions um, now are actually very strong supporters in the pro-public movement. And uh, for the opposite reasons, for the reasons that they know that actually pay and working conditions will probably be much better in the public sector. Well, this is probably, uh, thanks for digging in around this, because I think this probably would be uh, one of the key topics we should talk uh, further mm -hmm. forwards towards the People's Water Forum about what does it mean to reform the water utilities, the impacts on uh, laborers and etc. 
But then I want to go back to this, the cases that you studied. In what sense or what, what would be the conditions of possibility for labor unions also care about environmental, let's say, not just about welfare in a kind of strict sense of economic welfare? So in my PhD, I looked at a network called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, um, TUED, and they they basically phrase their whole uh, like idea of a movement around having, well, or wanting to live on a sustainable and renewable planet. And the only way to get there is not by implementing like the green neoliberal discourses of green growth and uh, carbon capture and storage and all sorts of implements, but to actually drive the green transition through implementing renewables and they come to the conclusion that it's only possible if they are uh, making the decisions about the energy sector the generation and the distribution networks in order to green them so they are very much motivated by that i mean this is also part of the more climate justice movement you know no jobs on a dead planet so that's how they come uh where is it and what kind of sector or how how big is the unions i mean do you have any basic information yes so um i did my research with them back in uh, 2017 and 18. So they will have grown uh, since then. The Trade Unions for Energy Democracy Network was set up in the US, but it actually has unions from, I, I think, yeah, so they are 100 trade union bodies um, that represent workers in 37 countries and regions and including four global union federations. And these are the um, Public Services International, uh, the educators and the food workers uh, and the transport sector workers. So those four unions, which are generally tend to be more progressive, I guess, but they also represent uh, unions in the energy sector, but also other sectors, as I said, transport, uh, public services. Um, and the presence when I was doing that study, um, it was mainly uh, um, Anglophone countries. Uh, but that was also a bit of capacity issue, I think, um, because yeah, so mainly uh, so the countries in that, that spoke some sort of English, but not necessarily in only English-speaking regions. The most participation from the US, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. No participation from Germany, which is interesting. But they've since really built it um, out. So there is quite a bit of um, uh, participation in the network from uh, South America as well. Um, some African countries, so Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, um, and in the um, sort of Asia Pacific, uh, it's uh, the Philippines, and let me see, um, well, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but yeah, so there's quite a bit of, um, and, and South Korea, actually. And so there's quite a lot of opportunity for growth. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's an interesting global network um, of trade unions that are all working um, for uh, public ownership of energy systems, really, but often expanding that to their transport networks or yeah, whatever they're interested in. Uh, thanks for explaining this. But maybe we return to some of theoretical concepts about neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, it's completely dynamic terrains. I mean, your your uh, focus of research, you're looking at very dynamic terrains in a way that the state dynamics within itself change and then the relation with the market and the way capitalism operate, there also has been so much advancement. Also the relation with social reproduction, relations with nature has already changed. So now, um, 
my point is that um, when I began my PhD, it was around 2009, and then uh, I started to get make sense of Europe, what is welfare state, and then, you know, most of the intellectual debates, let's say scholarship debates, that is hollowing out of a welfare state, as if now, we don't, you know, there's no power anymore. But but what you're trying to argue is that no, the state is there. This is the the creation, the the enhancement or um giving more power to local state is also part of the concert of the whole things. So maybe you could you could uh, kind of um narrate this a little bit to us uh, in the in the everyday language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll try. It's obviously quite complex uh, stuff but, and I'm still thinking my way through it as well so it's not like I have all the answers but yeah I should say it is a very even I, when I talk about the state it's a very Eurocentric um, way of thinking uh, of states partly because it is um, <laughs> like Germany is you know one of the sort of European uh, or... yeah model European states I guess um, except for the fact that we have now quite a young constitution as I said um, only since 1949 um, and a constitution that was founded, especially coming out of that horrible war uh, that the world was involved in, um, and think and 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 thinking through how we can um, build a democratic state from below. And this has informed the neoliberal state in Germany, I think, quite heavily, um, and maybe protected Germany a little bit from the the worst sort of hollowing out as we have seen in the UK, um, in the US. Uh, again, in Chile as a testing ground for some of these neoliberal um, ideas that uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and Reagan in the US came up with. Um, and I think in the, yeah, the particular type of German neoliberalism then um, is different to the experience in the UK and US. Um, and it's, I mean, sometimes it's referred to as ordo liberalism instead. Um, but that's also another big term. And it basically just means that the neoliberal experience is much more entangled with the social market idea that was um that that was sort of followed in Germany. So the idea that the German state is not just um a sort of empty legal entity that things could be protected on, but it's actually in this constitution described as a sozialstaat, which means a social state. Um, and that has implications for how it interacts with its citizens or what it should do for its citizens. So it maybe has an inbuilt mechanism of being slightly less awful, if we could call it that. Um, though I don't want to overstate, again, um, that Germany is not neoliberal. It has neoliberal tendencies as everywhere else. Um, it has contributed to intense inequalities, the different um, policies that were followed, like commercialization and privatization that happen in Germany as well. But again, there, um, maybe we should look back at when that happened, so a bit later than in other places. So not necessarily in the 1980s, but more in the 1990s. Um, and it was also related to the German reunification. So um, another big thing in the history of Germany, obviously, was that East and West Germany were being reunified uh, into what is now the German Federal Republic. Um, in 1990, but to do so, um, a lot of the infrastructures and industries in the East were being privatized. 
um, by the West. <laughs> so um, that was partly because the East had quite a lot of economic depth and partly because the European Union at the time was pushing for liberalization strategies and partly because in Germany as well, neoliberal thinking had um, sort of arrived in the mainstream and was quite popular. So um, we saw large scale privatization of Eastern German infrastructure and industry, which influenced um, that process in the West as well. So, yeah, but one thing that should be said is that um, privatization that did happen in Germany, um, especially for energy and also water infrastructure was um, sort of had mechanisms in place that made it um, more reversible down the line. So um, these were done with concession contracts and the concession contracts meant that after a certain amount of time, like 10 years, 15 years, the municipality was able to renegotiate if it still wanted to um, have the particular service or infrastructure like water or energy be provided by a private provider or if it wanted to take it back into public ownership. And this is how a lot of the campaigns that we could see in Germany were coming um, uh, were coming into a position where they could even renegotiate, where they could push for public ownership or collective ownership, and where they could try to deprivatize um, certain services and infrastructures. Thanks, really. Uh, I think I think you've done a really a great explanation. Now my question is that, so then, do you think that with the concession contracts, so is, we have this French model and the British model in water privatization, right? Where the, the, the British model is that when uh, state utilities sell all the assets, and while the concession contract is that no, the assets is um, the asset the, still owned by the state, but then the concession contract then by private sector, then it's also less. Can we say that this is also more friendly scheme in a way that there's some there's still room to to kind of um, terminate the contracts rather than when the assets already sold to the private companies? I don't know. Do you maybe have some some view on this? Yeah, I think so. I, I should say I, I'm not an expert in concession law. <laughs> I think it's also very complex. Um, but in Germany, uh, a lot of the time when we interviewed people about how or why they took services back into ownership, they said, well, the time was up for renegotiation. So there was always a backstop. Um, it was always a certain time period. Uh, and I think it was based on certain key factors. And if um, the municipality then said, well, the 10 years are up, and you said you would make uh, our service cheaper and uh, better for the um, users, but we don't see that. We don't see evidence of that. We'll take it back. Um, so it's more of a loan than a sale, if that makes sense. That's how I make sense of it in my head anyway. And um, and I think in Germany that existed much more large scale that um, after a certain number of years, uh, people or the municipality could take that back and German people had sort of some some German people not everyone obviously but had like um caught on to that idea and they were forming in, in uh, citizens initiatives or campaigns to say to their local government we don't want us to be in private hands anymore we don't think they're doing a good job and they could then um use that mechanism uh of renegotiation to actually achieve uh, public ownership um, and public uh, governance of that um, 
uh, service again. But sometimes it would also happen without citizen involvement. So this is why I think it's an interesting thing because it doesn't have to be a citizen initiative. A lot of the time, German local authorities also take it back sort of quite quietly, but then it's out of private ownership because they've made the decision that it wasn't working. Yeah, maybe I should also correct my own statement that it's like, okay, concessions contracts more friendly. No, it's not what I want to say in a sense that there are also kind of many hidden mechanisms in a way that is even harder for public to criticize as well, no? Because then as if the the outer appearance are still public, but actually not. So Francisca, I think you have tell us some important steps to deepening the discussion. Thank you so much. I hope we're in touch. Just for yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This was really, really nice.